never uh, mix uh, religion and politics. And so um, because, because it is such a, a contentious time right now in our culture, uh, I thought that right now we would go ahead, we would go ahead right now, as awkward as it will be, we're going to go ahead and settle the debate right now, okay? Some of you right now, I mean, you're getting antsy, you're ready to walk out, okay? But we're going to figure it out right now. So everybody's going to vote. Who is your favorite superhero? Is it Batman or Superman, okay? Put it up here, Sean, you got it. Who is it, okay? Okay? So think about it here for a second. Think about it here for a second. I think I got you on that one, didn't I? I got you. I got you. You guys were thinking it was about ready to get weird, all right? How many votes for Superman here? How many are, are Superman people? Okay. Yeah. How many, how many Batman? How many Batman? Woo! <laughs> I, I think we've settled it. I think we've settled it, all right? Now, for me personally, again, I'm, I'm speaking for me personally, uh, I'm a Batman guy, okay? Um, I, I like um, vehicles and his vehicles far outweigh that of Superman. But there's one thing about Superman that I do appreciate. Uh, there's one aspect of Superman's mojo uh, that I, I wish I had. And uh, that piece is his ability, uh, next slide, to walk in a telephone booth and walk out of it as Superman. Right? It's like if somehow, if somehow we could uh, attain that sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, changeability, it would be pretty incredible, right? Like we, we walk in something and then we walk out however uh, we want to be. Uh, change, though, is, is much more difficult than Superman's superpower of changeability. But, but yesterday something else dawned on me. So yesterday was my wife and I's last day of parenting three children in the single digits. Um, because today... My uh, nine-year-old yesterday uh, turned 10 today, uh, Avery Grace. Uh, here's uh, some pictures of kind of her uh, development. And um, so yesterday, we, we've kind of developed this tradition. I, I took her to the mall, and uh, we just do girly things. So we, we went in Bed Bath & Beyond, okay? And I'm smelling lotions and picking between, like, Japanese, like, rose blossom, which I don't even know if that's a real one. And, you know, some other, I'm like, Daddy, smell this. What does it smell like? The same as the last six, you know, is what I'm thinking, you know. But what I tell her is, oh, honey, like that one, I can, you know, smell more of a hint of lavender in that one, you know. And um, so anyway, we're, we're, uh, we've, we're finally down in Macy's because I guess that's where you go. Um, and, and I pick out this shirt for her. Come to find out later she didn't like it, but... Um, but, but listen to this, it had owls on the front, and we had just bought owl uh, earrings at Claire's. So I'm like trying to do like the, the girl, like match it up, like earrings and shirt. And so I'm sitting there holding up this, this owl shirt to my daughter, and all of a sudden I'm just overwhelmed with how much she has changed. It's crazy, right? Like I've talked about her, uh, her birth process before, but like being in the, in the labor and delivery room holding this precious daughter of mine and I'm just weeping over and yesterday I'm like she is almost 10 it's crazy how much uh, change happens as crazy as Superman's story is or even like our physical bodies change and we mature and grow um, there are other times where change seems insanely difficult and, uh, and that's been the thing that as tonight we close 1 Corinthians, that I have most been impacted by. Is Corinth going to change? On the very first night, 52 weeks ago, okay? So right now, tonight is the 51st, 51st night studying 1 Corinthians, okay? I said one thing about the church in Corinth. I described the church in Corinth as a hot mess, but really likely, now next slide, this is really the way to describe them, okay? I'll see your hot mess and raise you a walking disaster. That's kind of what we've seen in Corinth. Now, to, to prove it to you, I couldn't do that in chapter 1. But now in chapter 16, after a year's worth of journey, 
I can show you how much of a hot mess Corinth is by walking through every single sin of theirs that Paul mentions in the book. So I thought, hey, just for fun, let's look back through all 16 chapters and see what their sins were, okay? Shall we? Here we go. Next slide. The sins of Corinth. Let's just start in chapter 1, okay? They're divided by who they are following. Remember this? Some follow Apollo, some follow Cephas, some follow Paul. They're quarreling. That's never good. But, oh, we're just getting started of this some 30 amount of sins. Next slide. Check this out. In chapter 3, we see they're not maturing in Christ. They're, they're staying infants. They're not growing. There's jealousy and strife. They're, they're putting too much stock in leadership and people. They're giving themselves too much wisdom credit. Uh, this was much of our journey. I mean, it, they thought they were awesome all the time. That's generally the church in Corinth. They were taking for granted the body as a temple of the Lord. That was also in chapter 3. This is just three chapters in. And if you're like me, you're, like, you're getting this sense that, that Paul and Corinth aren't besties because Paul takes this entire letter to rebuke them. And what I'll remind you of there was, there was actually four letters that were written to Corinth. Only two of them we have in the scripture because the other two are lost. So in other words, Paul takes more information and more time on rebuking the church of Corinth than any other church. Let's keep going just for fun. Check this out. Chapter 4, they were going beyond scripture. That's never good. They were also getting boastful in their giftings and wisdom. There we see that again. It was becoming self Serving, in other words. How about this next list? This gets uh, somewhat compiling in chapter 5. Remember this? Sexual morality where sons were sleeping with uh, the wives of their dads, okay? Uh, this is not good, okay? They were boasting. We see greed and idolatry. They were reviling. There were drunkards. There were swindlers. And I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. This wasn't every person in the church in Corinth. Certainly not every person is sexually immoral in this way. But he's writing rebuking the church, so certainly it was a prominent of enough issue. How about this next slide? We see this in chapter 6. They're mishand, uh, mishandling disputes and lawsuits. That feels like forever ago when we studied lawsuits, okay? There's adultery, thievery, again, drunkard, uh, drunkards, swindlers, revilers, and now just general sexual immorality, not necessarily with a, uh, uh, the, the wife of, a hu- uh, of your father, but now just general sins against the body and the sexually immoral. Next slide. How about this, this next compiling list from chapter 8 and 10? They were causing others to stumble. Remember this, to care for the weaker vessel. They had a prideful knowledge. And here we see in chapter 10 again, idolatry. Next slide, closing this list in. In chapter 11, there's divisions and factions. Chapter 12, they're taking the body of Christ for granted. And, and there's, this, there's this attitude of not even needing the body of Christ. So as you can see, the church in Corinth was just rocking it, okay? They had no issues at all. They were, no, like these guys are a crazy hot mess. Next, next slide, look at this. Okay, in chapter 14, there was disorderly use of spiritual gifts. People were using speaking in tongues out of order and prophecy out of order. And finally, in chapter 15, there's disbelief over the resurrection. So just for fun, you're not going to be able to read, ah, one of these. I put them all on one slide. Okay, so check this out just so we can see them all. There they are. All right. So if you're Corinth and if you've been taking note, okay, like you're wondering how this thing is going to end, Right? Because you're like, Paul has not held back any punches. Like, he, he's, he's kind of come at us here. And so the big question is, how, after all of this, through 15 and a half chapters, is he going to end? Well, that's what we'll get to answer tonight. Will Corinth, can Corinth change? Open your Bibles, my friends, to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The last segment of this book, someone was asking me um, earlier, they're like, how does it feel to, to finish a book? Well, we've been at it 11 years, and so we've finished many a book now. And, and I described it, I likened it to uh, the end of an Ecuador trip for me. I'm so blessed by the journey, but I'm also excited about what's to come. So the last year has been such a piece of growth, I think, for me and our community here. But I'm also excited for what's coming up, of which we'll communicate later. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has his opportunity. Now, If you're just joining us, this may seem a little bit out of left field, 
And this generally will because it seems like Paul's throwing random names in at the last. Uh, This is typical for ending a letter. But Apollos isn't random at all. Apollos has been mentioned uh, so far six times in 1 Corinthians. Apollos was one of the prominent leaders in Corinth. Some people were following Cephas. Some people were following Paul. Others were following Apollos. But now we see this interesting ministerial relationship between Paul and Apollo. So if you were just making some observations, what would you say from verse 12? I would say that, that though Paul strongly urges Apollos and Paulos, Apollo says no, it means that Paul doesn't have some sort of like massive authority over all of those who are being missionaries at this time. You guys see what I'm saying? Because I kind of pictured Paul as like the, 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 the chess mover, you know, like empowered by the spirit to say, hey, you go over here, you go over here. But but here, he's like, hey, Apollos, go over here. And Paul's like, I don't think so, bro. I'm going to stay over here. Okay. Okay. But he still mentions him to make sure that they understand the relationship. Now, verse 13 and 14 to, to me is maybe the entire key of the entire book. Here's what he says. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Now, this is weird because what we're getting ready to to see is some more kind of ending stuff. You know, some names mentioned, some places mentioned. So why this now? So my questions were, is this his summary? Is is this like his closing remarks, kind of the benediction, the, the punch? Which in that way would make sense because this is kind of military kind of teaching, right? Be watchful, be alert, be aware. In another place in Scripture, in 1 Peter, we see be watchful because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So we see some of that same kind of language. Stand firm in the faith. But keep in mind, he's telling this to the church in Corinth who is a mess, so when I got to this, this part of the text, I'm like, what is going on here? It seems like he would maybe say some other things. It seems like maybe he would be more poignant in some other ways. Instead, some, some final encouragement. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Act like men um, seems like some sort of, you know, non-chivalrous encouragement, right? How many of you ladies are instantly offended, okay? You could admit that. I see that in several dudes as well, okay? Uh, so I, I understand Act like men, like, like what, what, what does that mean? Because some of you are like, I've seen how men act. And so if Paul's saying act like men, that is not an encouragement, right? Like, I, I understand that. And we've seen how he's challenged the men in Corinth. So he's saying act like men in Corinth, like that, that's, that seems strange, right? Like, why would you say that, Paul? Well, listen, the King James Version in this, uh, in this text I think really, really gets close uh, to the meaning. It's, it's a military, like, be courageous, be brave. So when he says act like men, he's not looking at boys, you know, saying be more mature. He's telling the church to be brave and have courage. He tells them to be strong, which only adds to that point. And then verse 14, love comes back in the picture. You remember the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13? You remember how we walk through that and process through that? So I just, I want to, I want to table this verse for a second. We're going to, we're going to look at it in, in the bigger picture here in just a moment. But I want you to take note of this encouragement to the church in Corinth. All right, let's keep going. Check this out in verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of, of Stephanus was the first of converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and uh, Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such people. Now, this is going to be a throwback to chapter 1. 
Uh, we see in chapter 1 uh, that this man that I'll shorten for Steph so that I don't botch his name one more time, okay, uh, he, that his whole household was baptized. And so apparently now these, these three characters have come back to play, not just in the, in the baptism component or in their changed life, but the scripture says to Paul, maybe hanging out with him in Ephesus, because that's where he is uh, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, verse 18 says, they have refreshed his spirit. And so I started considering this. Paul, a missionary, uh, beaten, left for dead at many instances. He's been stoned. He's taken lashings for Christ. What does it mean for someone to refresh him? In fact, let's say it this way. Next slide. Let's ask it this way. What relationships refresh your spirit because of their obedience to the Lord? It's interesting to me that Paul mentions it, and I think by mentioning it, he makes us understand how critical it is for us to be around other followers of Christ who are obeying Christ. We welcome back uh, tonight uh, the Johns family back from China. Super awesome to have them back here. Got a chance to be a part of their wedding. They've been gone a couple years serving in China. I got to give them some love and some hugs earlier. But there are a couple that when I get around them, when I talk with them, when I hear about what God is doing in their life, my spirit is refreshed because I'm reminded of the relevant power of God and how he can take a man and a woman and use them in unexpected, un- like crazy ways. And so just by sitting with them, in fact, I'll even, I'll even be weird about this, by, by just hugging them tonight. Like I found my spirit refreshed because they are the representation of obedience. The reality is many of you are around uh, for the majority of your time. Uh, folks that don't refresh your spirit, but that we could even say drain it. Now it's going to be a little bit of the reality because we're all around non-believers and, and there's nothing to be ashamed about that. In fact, it's our great opportunity to love and encourage, but... The importance of the koinonia and the fellowship of the body of Christ. The importance of joining together like we do here in our community on Sundays to be reminded of God's work and the power of people's lives. It bears such a massive encouragement to what God is doing. Come on. Because what happens when you ask questions about what God is doing in people's lives and you hear their story, you're reminded again, yet again, that your God is alive. And so I have to think as Paul is beaten, worn down, fundraising, he's working hard. I mean, he said all kinds of chaos happened. The obedience of these three, maybe they delivered uh, the letter, maybe there was uh, some connection that way. But the obedience of these three folks, it nurtures him, it refreshes his spirit. Uh, So I want to make sure you, you understand this on the opposite side. The disobedience of followers of Christ affect the body of Christ. Uh, this past weekend with our leaders, um, we had a whole weekend uh, together as Lot Family Leaders. It was a beautiful time. And on Friday night, I taught on the doctrine of biblical joy. And straight from the scripture, one of the things that we learned was that, uh, that joy leaks out sometimes or has the capability to do so based on the disobedience of others. It doesn't have to, but when you see the disobedience of others, when you're burdened with the disobedience of others, like it can, cause, it can cause so much hurt and pain in you as you watch them hurt. Isn't it true? Haven't there been brothers and sisters in your life who you've watched go by the wayside or watch deny Christ or watch double bird him and turn their back on him and it does something in you, it hurts you. Just like the obedience of believers refreshes your spirit, the disobedience of believers impacts and affects the rest of the body of Christ. That is why we are a body. It's easy to believe that your sin is isolated. It's easy to think that those sins that are happening in your life when you're alone are only impacting you. I want to beg to differ. Somehow, strangely, my secret sins are impacting yours and yours impacting me. 
And so I love the language. What if, what if, what if? A daily outworking of this, a daily prayer. Was God, will you continually bring believers in my life that can refresh my spirit because of their obedience of you? And there may be some people where you're like, I am so encouraged by how you're following Christ. I just need to be around you. And that may be the flourishing of some discipling relationships or just some relationships in general. But for a missionary on the road, these three represent something so, so more. So verse 18, he says, give recognition to such people. Encourage these people. Now verse 19, this is really, really interesting. And I want to hang here for a little bit just to explain. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church. They housed Paul in Ephesus maybe for as much as a year and a half. They were a couple. They send you hearty greetings in the Lord. I love that, right? When you think of the word hearty, what do you think of? I think of Campbell's soup. Any of the rest of you guys? You know what I'm saying? So I'm like picturing like greetings in the Lord that's like this big can of like You know, these like big meaty pieces of Campbell's soup and some, you know, big NFL player. Anyway, okay. So with that in your mind, now look at verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, um, I've been in settings before where this has happened. And it's really caught me off guard, okay? Right? I've been in settings before where like because of the, the community... They, they took this passage, which is one of five, okay? This is mentioned five times in the New Testament. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and they've implemented that. And so, you know, I'm like coming gatherings. I'm, I'm expecting like the bro hug. And sure enough, brother comes in and kisses the brother right up here on the cheek, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, you know, and, you know, and, and, and so you, you kind of, you're like, well, what's, what's going on here? Well, the interesting thing about different cultures is they greet one another differently. Okay? I'm sure my Chinese friends can, uh, can uh, assimilate to that. When you go to Ecuador, how many of you guys have been to Ecuador here? Okay. I was, I was hoping for not hands, okay, but like cheers. You like raise your hands like we were in a second grade classroom. I must be quiet, but okay. Anyway, so in Ecuador what happens? When someone comes in the room, they greet everyone. And it is seen as anti-cultural to only greet one person. Okay, so in a, in a setting of like 30, someone comes in the room and it's, here we go, here we go. I mean, they just work the room, right? And, so, and then, listen, not just when they, when they come in, but when they leave. When they leave, hey, it almost makes you want to stay longer and tell people weed out, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's get this back down about five or so, you know, it's a little more manageable, okay? But no, man, like, here we go. We got to say goodbye to everybody. And as and kind of awkward and weird as it is, it's super awesome to watch like this, this welcome of the Lord, to watch this encouragement of the brothers and sisters in Christ happen. And so though we're not going to implement the holy kiss uh, here at Matthias, okay, um, which some of you were wondering, right? You're like, sweet, right? Like, Excuse me, I've been trying to, you know, date this girl for a long, you know, no, we're not going to write like, no, okay, it was, it was a kiss on the cheek, okay, um, we're not going to implement it, but what I will continue to encourage you in is hearty greeting, uh, even, even right before the teaching time, do you know the reason why we do the meet and greet, and so we're like, so that we can get the kids out of here, hold on a second, first of all, we don't want to get the kids out of here. In fact, we love that the kids are in here during the first part of worship. And so if you've ever found yourself frustrated because you hear kids yelling and screaming during the singing, take that time to celebrate how God is molding family in this body. You know what? Because I love the fact, I love the fact that my kids are back there rocking the words, singing every word. I'm like looking at Dawson's hands being raised. And I remember when, when my kids were one, two, three years old watching me worship. And now worship like that, it's beautiful. And so our kids don't leave and go back there. They go to their place of worship. So while that's happening, because we believe love first and then truth. In other words, we believe the love of the Lord precedes truth. We want to turn this whole room into a love feast. And so we're greeting people heartily in the Lord. 
It's because we want to make sure guests, visitors, and those who have been around for all 11 years know that every truth that will be spoken tonight is because of a loving God who we can now love one another because he first loved us. So I'm I'm just encouraging you, like some of you kind of get a little skittish in the meet and greet time. I'm just saying, okay, so that we don't have to bust out the holy kiss, let's just get hearty in our greeting. You guys know what I'm saying, right? So this is what happens. Greet one another. This is a cultural way of celebrating and taking this in. Now, 16 chapters worth, and Paul has been using a scribe. In other words, he's been talking, and someone else has been writing. In fact, interestingly enough, there's uh, one place in Scripture that gives us an indication that Paul had, like, doctor handwriting, okay, that it was bad news bears. Uh, I, for one, have bad handwriting as well. Anyone else? Okay, so, but apart from all that, now Paul picks up the pen. He picks it up. Look what he says in verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, okay? And some of us are like, way to go, buddy. You know, like, are you, you want a medal? You know what I'm saying? Like, like why, why are we celebrating this? This doesn't seem like we should be celebrating, okay? Now he says this, verse 22, okay? If anyone, if anyone has no love for the, for the Lord, let him be accursed, and then this really, really, really interesting phrase, our Lord come. Our Lord come is the Aramaic word Maranatha. Can you guys say it with me? Maranatha, okay? Some of you guys will remember the Maranatha worship movement of the early 90s, okay? Now, Maranatha means come Lord. Uh, this is the only place that we see this Aramaic word used. But he gets to the end of this letter and he makes two things crystal clear. Number one, if you de- desire to deny the love of Christ, then your end is absolutely clear. He says, be accursed. But then on the opposite side, on the opposite side of that spectrum, I picture pen in his hand, thinking about the return of the Lord, thinking about the help of the Lord, thinking about the welcome of the Lord, thinking about what the Lord has done. And I picture him, even though he's writing, have you ever talked while you're writing before? Some of you guys do that when you text, okay? My wife does that. She like, like when she's texting, she's like whispering words to herself, okay? I don't picture Paul whispering words to himself like, oh, Lord, come. We need you now. We feel lost. We feel at times hopeless. We're ready for your return. Maranatha, please come, Lord Jesus. Now, we could say that certainly in one aspect he's talking about the final return of Christ, which he has just talked about in chapter 15. But I also think there's this element of now, of present, of we need your help. Why? Because there are people that are distancing themselves from the Lord Jesus. And so he's pleading, come, Christ. Powerful, powerful language. To then end this entire book, very interestingly, with verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, I have really struggled in my heart understanding why he ends this way. And you're like, but Mark, this is like classic Paul. Yeah, maybe. But you know why I've struggled? Next slide. I've struggled because of this. I've struggled because in, in my heart, he, he's built such a case against them. He's built such an overwhelming case of their sin. And then for him to end with what feels like the, the passing of like a grace rose feels really, really strange. 
So I, I had to reconcile that. I, I, you have to reconcile that. Why? Why does he end this epic journey with this? And so for me, the way to reconcile it was to understand this. Next slide. What would Paul rebuke at ML? So if Paul were to write first Matthias's lot, okay, and, and probably better, it would be like first St. Charles, okay, or whatever. If he were to write to us, what would be our list? Now, I'm not Paul, okay, have his handwriting, but I'm not Paul. Uh, so what, what I've done is I've, I've talked to some of our other leaders, and I want to propose what I think to be at least five things that a Paul were writing, first Matthias's lot to us, to rebuke us, uh, things that he might challenge us on, sins he might breach. I, I, I've shared this before. I think we would all be in for a surprise if Paul were to preach here. And what I mean by that is there's this like certain heaviness that comes when you're willing to die for your faith, that when you get around a whole bunch of culture that doesn't seem willing to die, that I know would cause a rub. And it'd be really, really interesting to see his approach. So Paul wrote to rebuke ML, inspired by the Spirit. Next slide. I think he would call us out on this. Inconsistent endurance. Now, just like Corinth, this isn't going to be for everyone. But I believe what we've seen is, um, as a church, is this tendency to, to come, out of the, come out of the gate hot. We come out strong. New, new vision, new ideas, new opportunities, new way to use gifts. But what, what happens is, at times, me, some of you, it can be a battle to stay the course. Let me just use discipleship as an example. Discipleship, what we would say here, uh, is not a vision of Matthias. It is a vision of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples. So what we've done here is try to shepherd us together as a church in the effort. And so what we've seen is a lot of discipling relationships that come out of the gate hot, but that fizzle. Begin to fizzle when it gets hard. Begin to fizzle when there seems like there's distance. Begin to fizzle when there's, you name it. Uh, some of our efforts in the city, I, I pray, I pray that we will endure. I, I told you many, many times for us to be a church in the city, for the city, it is going to take year after year after year of not growing weary of doing what is right. It's not just a quick hit, but that is our flesh. Our flesh wants the good story. Our flesh wants to write a checker or, or show up at an event and then walk away. But I'm telling you, we have a city wide full of desperate people who love, love, love the opportunity to be loved. And they need to hear the love of Christ. I, I've told you before, I want to die here, be buried here. Why? Because I, I know that the work is going to take years and years and years and years to see fruit. We can come out of the gate hot, but my friends, if we just become addicted to another vision, instead of resting on the endurance of the Lord, which by the way, in Romans 15, verse 5, oh my goodness, Paul calls God the God of endurance. Can I tell you why he calls him that? Because God sees it through. God had a plan of redemption, and he has, saw it, he has seen it through, and he will continue to do so. But I think what we battle with at times is, is we get in, and it gets hard, and, and so it becomes so easy for us to fizzle. Listen, church, may we be challenged to endure in following the God of endurance. Are you with me? Is it going to be flowery all the time? No. Is, is it going to be easy all the time? No. Is, is discipleship the easiest thing in the world? No. But all those things, unbelievably beautiful for us to do it together. I think he calls on endurance. Number two. Again, this isn't everyone. Maybe it even isn't systemic. 
One of the biggest things that came out of our First Corinthians journey is that he's called us to come and die, to lay down our lives. And I just want to make sure we all understand something. You cannot die for the cause of Christ to your flesh and also consume. Those two things are rubbing against one another. They're running against each other. You cannot somehow feed from the faucet of your flesh and long in your heart lustfully after comfort and then simultaneously die to your flesh. You're only doing one. And everything around us, even in American Christianity, that was my premise when we, when we went through this, I share with you. I believe there are massive, massive percentages of people in America that think that they are Christians. But when you read the scripture, he's called us to come and die. And so our lives are representative of what God is doing in us. And certainly what we're seeing in our culture, even in American Christian culture, is it's, hey, come and take, come and get, come and be about you. That is nowhere in the scripture. Nowhere. It's if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's those who want to save their lives will lose it, and on and on and on. I think generally because he would see our culture, he would say, hey, Matthias lot. you have a great opportunity as a corporate body to die. To not feed into the comfort message. To not give in to the lure that your house and your family and your cars and your wealth is all about you. One more day at the grind of building your comforts. That is not the gospel, my friends. A whole book worth of calling the church of Corinth to task on this issue, and I believe and I hope and pray tonight us. Thirdly, I think he would rebuke Matthias on the bench sitters. Again, please hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. When we sign up to follow Christ, I want to make sure every single person understands there is no bench. Some of you maybe did some bench warming in your days, okay? I'm not here to judge any of that. I did a fair share of that in college myself, okay? Handing water to people, high-fiving people. But listen, let me make sure you understand something. When we come and follow Christ, there is no more bench. We are all the body of Christ together. That's why one thing we do regularly here is diminish the one priestly role. Diminish this image that ultimately what you all are coming to is to hear one man who only that one man can interpret God's word and only that one man can lead us. I want to make sure you hear yet again from us. We are together, together, call a part of this priestly order of Christ. We are not here to, to hear from Pastor Jared because he's the only one who can interpret God's word. All of us have the Holy Spirit in us. All of us are in the body of Christ, which means all of us are the church and all of us are off the bench. So I think Paul would come on up here if he were preaching or if he were writing a letter and say, hey, what, what's everybody doing? Well, but I'm not on the greeting team. I've talked about this a million times. Once you're a believer and you walk in those doors, you're on the greeting team. Well, well, Mark, but I'm not in this ministry. Whoa, whoa, no, let me make sure you understand something. We are all ministers of reconciliation. That's what scripture calls us, every one of us. Sons and daughters of the most high God who have been empowered by the spirit to go be a light to the world. So, my friends, there is no bench. Now, I, I understand what you're fighting through. The same thing I'm fighting through. When I was growing up, I saw the old percentage 80% of the work being done by 20% of the people. May it not be so here. But Mark, I'm not a law family leader. Oh, I, maybe not. But your role in that law family is quintessential. When was the last time you asked that law family leader, hey, can I come early? Can I pray for you? Can I clean up the dishes afterwards? What can I do to help with the kids so they can be nurtured in the Lord and they can hear the gospel? And on and on and on. I mean, just, just simple stuff. You're walking up the building. You're like, if I look at one more weed in the flower bed, I'm going to, so do something about it. You see what I'm saying? 
But even like that, we're waiting on someone else. Well, I'm sure they have a maintenance guy. Obviously not a, a maintenance guy of the weeds. We have an unbelievable, unbelievable team to clean this space. Okay, but, but there's no weed guy. So listen, how about it? And that's just one example. But my friends, us in the world, with our coworkers, with our family members, with our neighbors, these precious people that are living by us, there is no bench. This isn't even get off the bench. It's recognizing that you're not even sitting on one. It's not possible if you're in Christ. I think he would also rebuke us. Number four. All right, all right. Why? Why? Why do we think that there's a safe place? Why do we think there's a safe place to gossip? Why do we think that somehow that we can have a relationship where in that relationship we can just do a whole lot of sinning? Well, hey, you're my safe place, so you can tell me anything. When we get together, you can berate every other person in the body of Christ right now. So let's go, because this is our safe place. This is our relationship where we're secure in our relationship, right? And we can just talk bad about everyone else. Can someone show me that passage, please? You're not going to find it. But that's what we've taught ourselves, right? Oh, I've got relationships where I can just be, I can just do me. So does being you mean a gossip? Does, does being you mean comfortable to judge others? I think Paul would come on up in here and say, hey, let me reiterate the teaching of Jesus. When someone has sinned against you, go to your brother or sister and talk to him about it. Go to them. I think he would come all up in here. And, and ultimately, though, you know what? We struggle going to some, we, go, we struggle going to that person because we want people in our camp. We want to build our camp first so we feel like we can come out with some firepower. Oh, it's just not me that feels this way. It's about six other people. Six other people. How many people have you been talking to about this? Not many, like 10, okay? And four of them were on the fence, but six of them feel the same way I do. Church, we will be so much healthier, so interested in the glory of Christ if when others sin against us, we go to the person first. We go to them. Now, I, I know this is tough, and I know it's a battle, but right now I think what's happening is we are learning the hard way. I long for healthy biblical relationships. Anyone else? I long for them. But the only way it can happen in this body is if we continue to kill gossip. And the only way that can happen is if we can all be assured that all of us don't have safe places where gossip is okay. Again, you're going to have to show me the text where gossip is okay, where judgment is okay. And I'm telling you right now, you will not find it. Let's abolish the safe place. Let's make Christ our safe place. And let's pursue healthy biblical relationships. There's so much power in that, my friends. So number five, and, and again, I don't think Paul would be done at five, but here's number five. Now, this works with leaders. This works with disciplers. This works with people. I would say in this body we have one mission. And that mission would be somehow, some way, that we would long to love God and love people, and amidst all of that, teach people that ultimately they only need Jesus. That's it. They ultimately don't need people, though relationships are a blessing. They ultimately don't need pastors, though pastors can lead. They ultimately don't need disciples, though that's a gift from God. What if every single one of us really believed at the core of us that even though he felt distance, even though, even though he felt like he was out here sometimes, that we together believed that we needed Jesus more than anything else? 
what would happen is we would be way, way, way quicker to talk to Jesus about things and way slower to talk to people. Listen, our natural tendency is we got a problem, we got an issue, we need a prayer, we go to someone. But listen, there's beauty, beauty, so much beauty in going to Christ first and letting the body of Christ play their rightful role. I think Paul would rebuke us on these things. So now, now the question's really, really clear. Corinth has got some sins. They're kind of a hot mess. They're battling through some stuff. But what could be said about us? Perfect? No. Flawless? Definitely not. Do we have our own sins? Yes. So then why doesn't Paul at the end of Corinthians say this? Why doesn't he communicate this? Honestly, like, I was kind of expecting that. I mean, he has, he has punched them, man. He's, he's gone after them. He's honed in their heart. Why doesn't he just say, hey, good luck, everybody, because I am now distancing myself from ever being a part of your church community because you have got 34 sins that you're struggling with. And you know what? I'm done. But instead... He says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Instead, he challenges them. He says this, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Why does he extend grace? Why does he challenge them? Because Paul really believes that through the power of Christ, people can change. Paul really believes that repentance can happen. Paul really believes that grace is their only hope and Christ is their only need. And so he gets to the end and doesn't say, be gone from me. He says, grace be to you. Church of Corinth, Matthias's lot. Why? Because there is still time to repent. There is still time to change. And that's the power of Christ in us. But the lack of change is very, very powerful. Next slide. Is there any area of your life where change feels hopeless? Where repentance seems impossible? Fathers, is there anything in your being a dad that you feel like there's no going back? You haven't established yourself as the spiritual leader in your home and you're too far gone. Singles in the room. Has there been a situation that's happened that has pushed you so far away from any sort of hope in relationships and any sort of hope in Christ? Sins that you've done in the secret while you've been awaiting and there's just... This overwhelming sense, I I am hopeless. There's no repentance. God would never welcome me back. This is over. Marriage is in the room. The last few nights have had, my guess is maybe some intense arguments, and you're wondering, you haven't said it yet, but you're wondering, is it over? Is it repairable? Can God do something? There's some women in this room that are battling with eating disorders. And it's become a secret sin in your life. And you you don't know what to do with it. And you're wondering, is all hope lost? Can I really change? Can I really repent? Will anything ever happen? Or is this just me now and forever? There's some of you that are addicted to pornography and other secret things that you're wondering in the hopelessness. Will this always be me? Will 30 years from now, will I still be attached to the lure of sexuality in a way that drives my every thinking? Paul could.
could have gotten to the end of the letter to the Corinth church and said, listen, all of you, good luck. You're done. It's over. It's hopeless. Instead, he says grace. Instead, he opens up the opportunity for God to change hearts. We have sins, don't we? We have ways that we're failing as a church, both holistically and individually. And we can sit in our hopelessness and bask in the lies of a deceiver who day after day will tell us that we're nothing. Or, right now, in this precise moment, we can say this. Maranatha, our Lord, come. You're our only hope. You're our only help. You're the only thing that we need. God, make us so reliant on your son Jesus in this church that we would see the hope that we have, that we would see repentance can happen, that we would see though it feels like it's all falling apart. Actually, through the power of Christ and an empty tomb, we tonight can live. Let's stand together. I feel like this for some of you. Right now is the cry that you've been longing for a whole year through this journey. There's something or some things that you feel like are too far gone. But what if? What if you just screamed out, God, I need you. I don't need this addiction anymore. I don't need this latch to this relationship. I don't need this lure to consumerism. God, I need you. Listen, church, don't you want that to be the thing that this city says about us? Listen, I don't know about those people, but I will tell you one thing. Those people need Jesus more than anything else. That's what they talk about. That's what they rest in. That's what they worship. They don't come together to be attenders at some worship gathering. They come and celebrate that hope is alive because Jesus is. So at the end of a letter, it seems like Paul could say, be gone, I'm done with you. Instead, he says, grace. Father, bathe us tonight. Our failures, our sins, our disobedience, the ways we've turned our back, the secret sins. Help us believe that you can do a work of change in our hearts. Help us believe right now that your grace is sufficient, God. Help us believe that our efforts in and of ourselves are in vain, but fueled by your Holy Spirit, glorify you. God, come. Send your Son, please come. Help us, Lord. We do not want for one second to rest on ourselves. We cry out as a church, oh God, please come.